1: You always have to wake up.
0: Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to Veritas at veritasradio.com, where we believe nothing but consider everything. This is the first edition of Season 4. And 2012. I'm still your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home, and let's buckle up. This is going to be an exciting year. I want to thank you, Fairy Dust member, for making this program possible. And to start the year, tonight's special guest is Sean David Morton. We will discuss highlights of 2011, predictions and projections for 2012 and beyond, as well as the confluence of events taking place this year, which happen every 26,000 years only, galactic alignment, and more. Sean David Morton will be with us shortly. And to listen to our full interview, just go to veritasradio.com and start the year on the right track. Click on the subscribe button and you'll receive access to all of our material including tonight's interview, which is jam-packed with information, and it's three hours long. And if you want to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website. Is our future predetermined, or are we responsible for changing the probabilities and altering it? What or who shapes the future? What happened in 2011? And what's in store for 2012? including Operation Unified Vision, which essentially renders posse comitatus, void and puts our military in action in our own country. Are our soldiers practicing urban warfare in Afghanistan and Iraq for events that are planned in the United States? Is the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, part of this plan in order to circumvent our Constitution and our Bill of Rights? This, and much more, with Sean David Morton, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
1: Hi, and you are listening to the Veritas show.
0: Sean David Morton's stunningly accurate predictions of future events in his books, lectures, and Delphi Associates newsletter have brought him international recognition as one of America's premier futurists, projective economists, intuitive healers, researchers, and spiritual teachers. He has been the director of the Prophecy Research Institute since 1992. Sean tirelessly continues his quest to bring the light of world media attention to the paranormal, the prophetic, and to the ascension of mankind. And directly from Southern California, I would like to welcome Sean David Morton back to Veritas. Hello, Sean. How are you?
1: Thank you so much, Mel. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure and a delight. And Happy New Year to you and everybody out there.
0: Same to you. Yeah, this is the very first episode of the year. And I talked to us about a little synopsis of 2011 and then talk about the, the, the future as you see it. Let's start with 2011 first. Just give us a synopsis of what you saw in 2011 and how it's going to take us to 2012.
1: Well, I think the biggest thing, and I'm, I'm sort of an odd voice in the wilderness on a lot of this stuff here, is because, you know, it's my belief that, that, that predicting the future and even the word prophecy itself, which is misunderstood, prophecy means, prophecy means teacher of righteousness. Prophecy just means somebody that says, you know, look, people, if, if you do ABC, XYZ is going to logically follow and you know, if you look at even the biblical Old Testament prophets, they were the ones who understood the cycles and the patterns, uh, the warp and weave of of history politically and economically, and so were able to predict a lot of things for uh, the nation of Israel in the uh, in the Old Testament. So, for me, 2011 was actually good news in a lot of ways, and and I, I have to I have to kind of skewer that by saying things like for. Since I started studying a lot of this, since, you know, since I, since I, you know, I lived in a monastery in Nepal in 1986, and I had a lot of uh, spiritual experiences back then in India. And you know, I lived in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was in residence while I was there, and then I lived in in Nepal with a, uh, in, a uh, in a, in a, in a Buddhist monastery there for a while. And since I became sensitive to the earth and sensitive to the planets, and started practicing a lot of the meditative techniques that that free you, if you will, from time and space that allow you to kind of flow down the timeline um, i 've been talking about various disasters and various things that could quite possibly occur to the planet um, and those those major things being for example, and this this is what I was worried about, and also what the uh, what the u s military has been worried about, what global governments have been worried about, and what I guess what you would call the uh, uh, the shadow government to the black government, if you will, whatever you want to call it that's kind of behind the scenes. The mother corporation, I guess, would be the best way. The
0: puppeteer. That
1: create, yeah, that then creates franchises that we then call the United States and Canada and Germany and you know Russia and whatever else. So they're all little franchises of the mother corporation. Right. And um, the biggest things that I saw was that, uh, number one, uh, there has been um, a series of prophecies that are backed up by the, things like the Great Pyramid of Giza, as an example, of a series of water based natural catastrophes that would begin in late two thousand and four through about two thousand and six and actually, I think Christmas this year was the seven year anniversary of the Asian tsunami that killed about two hundred and fifty thousand people or so um, and um, leading up to a period between two thousand and twelve and about two thousand and sixteen that was going to be a a, a savagely active uh, sunspot uh, cycle uh, that that we're moving into cycle twenty four in which the sun was going to go crazy, and that we were going to be faced with uh i guess what you would call massive uh, coronal mass ejections and possible kill shots, you know things that can you know kind of wreck earth's day uh part two is that uh true north and magnetic north have been marching towards each other ever since we began atomic hydrogen and cobalt bomb testing on this planet beginning in nineteen forty five Now the magnetic north of the planet, and people are this is kind of a confusing thing. True North, which is the, uh, which is the axle north, is, was about 1,000 miles or so away from the magnetic north pole. And there's three magnetic north poles. There's like an A, a B, and a C of the magnetic north poles that are right kind of within, within a, a very small, short distance of each other. And they were pretty stable. When it was first discovered in 1832, I think, um, it was all pretty stable. And then what happened was is that after 1945, they began to map the... The Arctic regions, are the, uh, they began to map the North, uh, the North Pole. Uh, this was the U.S. military, and it was actually something called the Flight of the Key Bird. Uh, they took the last of the uh, B-17 bombers. I hope that's right. Uh, the, the Enola Gay, I think, was one, and that's in the Smithsonian. The only other one that was working was the Key Bird. And they outfitted it, and they started mapping the North Pole. They started mapping because you can't use compasses when you fly over the top of the North Pole. So they mapped it out as a grid system. And they started actually marking where the North Pole was, and they began to realize the magnetic North, which was perfectly fat and happy where it was in 19, I'm sorry, in 1832, uh, began moving north rather radically. It became what they called untethered from the uh, from the core of the planet and started marching north. Well, this then led to a series of reports by the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, a lot of testing, uh, even things that are going on today at Hyderabad University in India that Magnetic North and True North were moving towards each other at a at a at a disastrous rate. And these are reports way back in the day. Of course this was back when they were saying, you know, two thousand twelve was so far off in the future. This was when, you know, like when Disneyland opened in nineteen fifty five. It was the it was the futuristic world of nineteen eighty six, you know, and you know, it was way far away. So the challenge being is that they believed in all these military reports, um, that True North and Magnetic North would meet at some point between twenty twelve and about twenty fourteen or so and that when this happened, you would experience either uh, a massive electromagnetic shifting of the poles, which, of course, would then be disastrous for civilization as we know it. It would fry everything that's connected to a ground wire, if you will, because uh, the natural frequency of the planet is 7.83 hertz. And for some reason, we've geared everything to uh, closer to 60 hertz, actually. It's a 60-cycle frequency. And... Um, so you have to have a ground wire that grounds everything into, you know, the actual frequency of the planet. So basically everything that's connected to a ground wire, everything electrical on Earth would fry. And we would suddenly be plunged back in the, you know, back into the 19th century. So, um, and the RAND Corporation was fully expecting this to happen. And part three of this is that the planet itself was, was actually slowing. And the rotational frequency of the planet was slowing, which was very bad. And they were worried about a series of massive Earth changes which could still occur, and remember, they, and again, the, the corporatocracy or the mother corporation or whatever, they know everything that I'm talking about. They know everything about the Mayan calendar. They know everything about the remote viewing stuff. They know everything, everything, the astrological alignments that are going on. Believe me, they take all of this stuff into account. My take on this has been that what we've seen happen, and again, I seem to be the only person that's not jumping up and down and yelling and screaming and saying that the global elite wants to murder us all and that they want to wipe out, I don't know, six and a half billion people and leave only 500 million people on the planet. Because everything I've seen uh, to that effect, the only place that I've seen global population uh, reduction be successful in any way, shape, or form um, has been, say, maybe uh, about 175 to maybe as many as 200 million people over the course of the last thirty years or so uh killed in Africa primarily from uh from AIDS, which was basically laced into a polio vaccine uh, by the world health organization mm-hmm. and and again um, and then it was it, it was it was very specifically uh, scientifically introduced into this country in very small uh, into about fifty thousand people in in uh, san francisco in new Kansas, york new york right. Yeah, through through a company called uh, Pyramid Pharmaceuticals, and they were testing a hepatitis uh, C vaccine at the time. So here's what I'm seeing, and and, and again, and this is why I think 2011 is very interesting. Uh, Number one, um, beginning in 2009, uh, something occurred in Norway that at the same time (laughs) Barack Obama um, the spiral. yeah, but, but Barack Obama was there receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Even Barack Obama was like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Come on, okay, I get it, I'm cool, I'm black, but, you know, I really haven't done anything yet, I really don't deserve this. So even Obama was kind of playing it off. But it gave an excuse for all these world leaders to go to Oslo, Norway, where you had kind of a Bilderberg meeting of some of the, you know, the richest and wealthiest people in the world there. And this weird spiral occurs in the sky. Now, people try to play it off as a Russian nuclear test, which the Russians said, that's ridiculous. Other people try to play it off as other things. But at that point, and I think there is a distinct possibility, and, I, and, and, and my research shows absolutely overwhelming evidence that this spiral was created um, by, I guess, what you would call the Scandinavian version of HARP, right. which is called ISCAT. And IceCat creates and by the way, that you can all the electricity in the in the country at that time, that the spiral was going, the electricity just spiked when they turned all these satellite dishes on, and they created this kind of. Uh, there's five or six different dishes around Norway that they can create this huge beam in the sky. I believe that one of two things occurred: that that spiral represented some kind of zero point energy, or a, a black hole kind of phenomenon, and it did one of two things. One. It pulled energy off the sun to specifically, and there's been all kinds of crazy things going on around the sun. Jaime Masson down in Mexico has produced a fantastic series of photographs that show these planet-sized ships that have been around the sun. I was told in 19... 95 and 96 by a Pleiadian contactee that was a friend of mine, a guy who called himself Audrey Ayn, that was the subject of the Miami contacts investigation, that there was something wrong with the sun, that the Pleiadians were doing something specifically with the sun, and, that there was, and they were trying to fix something with the sun for something that was happening in the future. But not only did it pull energy off the sun, but I think at the same time, it actually somehow altered the magnetic field of the planet, because at that time, and I'm just linking the two together, because approximately December 9th, uh, of 2009, which was the same time that this weird uh, tetrahedron shape, this gray tetrahedron, appeared over Moscow yeah. and just flew around the Kremlin for like a couple of days with everybody filming it and looking up at it, um, the magnetic field of the Earth drastically shifted. And what happened was is that suddenly the, mag- the North Magnetic Pole, which for, again, 60 years had been marching north, going faster and faster and faster and faster, suddenly listens to a little bit too much Fox News or Rush Limbaugh <laughs> or something and takes a hard right turn. And now the North Pole is about 160 miles east heading towards Siberia. So that's okay. So let's check thing number one off the list. Now, a polar flip that all these people, that Velikovsky was talking about, that all these people were talking about in 2012, is, quite frankly, no longer a possibility because of that particular phenomenon. And in all fairness, Edgar Casey did talk about uh, a polar shift of some kind between 1998 and 1999, and he said there would be there would be a shifting of the poles or uh, a, a a change in the mass consciousness. And what happened was there was not only a change in the mass consciousness, but at the same time there was a shifting of the poles. What happened was the pole went from went from pole A to pole B to pole C, and there was a very specific shift of the uh, of the polar north at that time to give Edgar Casey some of his due. So right now, so the polar shift is completely off the table. Part two of this whole thing is. It's very interesting because you've seen a series of earthquakes that have aligned with, and whether or not Comet Elenin had anything to do with this, Every t- Elenin was a very interesting comet because you had a fairly large object that was coming in at the same ecliptic as all the other planets in the solar system. So for all intents and purposes, astronomically and astrologically, this comet became another planet that you would actually have to, that was having squares and trines. And anybody that understands astrology could say, I mean, it's pretty unique because comets usually come in at all kinds of weird sort of cattywampus angles. Well, here comes Elenin. And Elenin comes in and every time Elenin took a hard square to the earth, which means a, a, a kind of a torsion field torque to the planet, we had these major earthquakes, and on the square was, the, uh, was an 8.8 earthquake in Chile, which sped up the rotation of the planet. Remember, the rotation of the planet was slowing. Sped up the rotation of the planet, altered the, uh, the, the crust and the continents of the planet. Then on, on the next square, you had a, a 7.2 earthquake in New Zealand. And within four days, I think, and technically you could say that it was actually right on it, because the square itself was on March 9th. The square itself was on March 9th of this last year, and that was when the beginning of the Japanese, uh, you know, the Fukushima earthquake occurred, because it started as like a six four, and then on the tenth it was like a seven the two,
0: and on the eleventh,
1: and on the eleventh it was the it was the 9.0. Right. Well, again, a a massive body of evidence that that quake was being, if not created, at least exacerbated by or made worse in some ways. By the heart project. Let me either, let me either...
0: interject for one second before you go with Fukushima. Regarding Obama and the Nobel Peace Prize, he wasn't even he wasn't even sworn in yet. He was the the president elect, and he was nominated for the Peace Prize, having done what? No, that's
1: that's not true. He was no. It's... It was in
0: 2009. Yes, it was. Well, it was
1: 2009. December, it was December 2009. He was elected in 2008. He was sworn in in January, and then he and then, and then it was December of 2009. So
0: well, but he, when was he uh, yeah. given the the uh, peace prize again?
1: December 9th of 2009.
0: Of 09. Okay. All yeah, right. Of 09. So okay. It's,
1: you know. Okay. So it's, it's all cool. He was. You know. He's. You know, even though he's born in Africa, you know.
0: <laughs> no, I just wonder what 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 he had done in such a short time to deserve it. That's all no, I'm asking. I
1: mean, nothing. And again, he should, And there's people there's people demanding that he should give it back after attacking Libya with no provocation. That's right. After after selling you know cluster bombs and nuclear tipped or busters to the Israelis, after you know basically not backing any of our allies. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. I mean, it's it is a weird thing because Obama is dancing. He's dancing a very thin line right now, Mel. And the thin line that he's is dancing is that he is, he is Muslim and Arab through and through. He is a huge supporter of the Saudi Arabians. Um, he became, he got into Harvard because Minel sore and this is another very mysterious thing as to how Barack Hussein Obama, a supposedly, you know, poor kid from Hawaii, uh, you know, with a white mother and a black father, suddenly gets the support of, has... Why does he have dinner with the president of Afghanistan? And why is he suddenly the golden boy of the Saudi Arabians and all this crazy stuff? And Menel Sor, who's the Saudi Arabian finance minister, wrote his letter of recommendation to get into Harvard. Now he's at Harvard. Well, he's not a particularly bright guy. There's nothing he's ever written, written that has ever been published. I mean, there's all of his Harvard Law Reviews, if he did anything, have now been classified for national security information. And he becomes head of the Harvard Law Review after not really writing a single cogent article, but because the Saudi Arabians donate $20 million to Harvard University to make him head of the law review. What? So he's good buddies with the Saudis. At the same time, he's dancing this line with, with, the, uh, with the very wealthy American Jewish population, with guys like Rahm Emanuel as an example. Rahm Emanuel, who was a colonel in the Israeli Mossad, who actually left the United States to fight for Israel during Desert Storm, and whose brother Ari. Um, is uh, one of the head guys over at the Creative Artists Agency, which means he basically runs Hollywood. And Rahm Emanuel gave up because he was trying to get Obama to back an expansion of of the war and the conflict against the Iranians. And Obama's like, oh, really? I was supposed to attack Iran on Tuesday? Well, I'm busy. i got a basketball game. Well, maybe next week. Maybe Friday. Oh, Well, maybe not then. But but let me stop you there, and and I hate
0: to to continue interjecting, but what I was saying about the, the Peace Prize, the nominations for the Peace Prize had to be postmarked by February 1st. Only twelve days after Obama took office, the committee sent out its solicitation to nomination September, two months before Obama was elected like president. So it's almost as if they knew what was going to happen.
1: I'm sure they did. You know, he was kind of a shoe in at that time. I mean, he was you know he was leading in the polls, and everybody expected it. And you know, again, there's there's, there's all kinds of there's agendas within agendas within agendas. And you know, I think that it was just an excuse. To gather everybody in Oslo, Norway, at the same time, I might add right. that they were actually that, they, that all these rich people were up there. they were announcing the opening
0: for a demonstration. Um,
1: of, 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 well of the uh, no of the uh, I hope I say it correctly, that the the Tromolo, the Tromolo seed Vault, where they basically hollowed out the yes. gigantic mountain, and now the and now the Norwegians are uh, putting together a gigantic uh library, if you will of non-genetically engineered seeds.
0: And the and the Vatican is one of the biggest sponsors of that project, by the way. You knew sure. that.
1: Yep. And, I, you know, I can bet you dollars to donuts that there's probably, not, you know, there's probably human DNA in there as well. So, again, you know, in case there's some kind of global plague or natural catastrophe, you know, and, of course, these, you know, these Frankenstein, frankenfoods could certainly get out of the box. Yeah. And, um, you know, these Terminator seeds and whatever, you know, could wipe out, well, just the fact that bees were dying out, right. and Einstein said, "When the bees go, mankind has four years after that." Mm-hmm. Although there has been, um, there was a lot of stuff that had to do with that, with the importation of Chinese bees that were actually get, that were actually diseasing the hives and whatever else. So the bee population seems to have recovered somewhat. But the point of this being is that is that when the Japanese earthquake struck, and the Japanese earthquake was at the top of this fault line, and for all intents and purposes, that quake should have hit lower on the fault line. Off the coast of Osaka and, and Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And you had, you had a 9.0 quake that caused less than 15,000 deaths in a relatively sparsely populated agricultural area that had the effect of shifting the pole of the Earth by six and a half inches. And by the way, the Chile earthquake shifted it by about five inches or so. So you've had almost a foot of readjustment of, of the pole. You've had the North Pole actually now heading east. You've had readjustments of the various fault lines that have actually sped up the rotational frequency of the planet. So look, as 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 weird as I sound, and and you know, and not being a fan of any of these New World Order guys, or you know, and, and I'm not saying that they're not putting the whole world together economically. I mean, we'll talk about that next. But putting the whole world economically is a gigantic prison with the with the battle between the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, where the Rockefellers basically. You know, who set up wonderful places like, oh, you know, Soviet Russia and Communist China. You know, that's Rockefeller. Those are the Rockefellers with their big stick, where we're just going to club the sheep and shear them and kill them and just slaughter the masses. Whereas the Rothschilds come in, and they set up countries like Canada and France, and, you know, it's a cage, and it's a socialist slave system, but it's got a blanket and a pillow. You've got, you know, health care, and you get some vacation, and, you know, they're saying, well, if, if we're nice to the sheep, you know, they will be better sheep. So right. this seems to be the conflict between the Rothschilds. Okay, go ahead.
0: But well, let's go step by step. Let's go back to Fukushima. Was it man-made, or was it natural? And if it was man-made, what was the reason?
1: Okay, let me tell you what, one last thing. Here, here, now, this, once again, my theory, my opinion. Okay. If you look at, if you take the Earth, if you start at the starting point of the central point of all landmass on the planet, the center of all landmass on the planet actually sits right dead center of a gigantic, like, thousand-square-mile granite plate that has its pinnacle in the Great Pyramid of Giza, mm. right there. Biggest building on Earth, most massive building on Earth, 30 times the mass of the Empire State Building, 455 feet high. Biggest building on the planet until they built the Eiffel Tower. And if you look right there, now, if you, if you draw an exact circle around the ring and you divide it into a triangle now, because those are where the stress points are, right. and you go exactly 120 degrees east of the Great Pyramid, you come out dead center on top of the Deepwater Horizon, which then ruptures uh, April a year ago, not this last year, but April a year ago, right. which then ruptures, and they just let this thing bleed for month after month after month after month. And, of course, what they were trying to do is they were drilling far deeper than they were licensed for. They were only licensed for 17,000 feet, and they were down about 38,000 feet because what they were trying to do is prove what the Russians had proved back in the late 90s the theory of abiotic oil, that oil is basically a renewable Mm, resource, mm -hmm. and that it's actually produced like blood of the Earth. So they drill down, they drill into what essentially is an asphalt volcano. But here's the theory. I mean, outside of them wrecking the economy of the Gulf Coast and and Halliburton being able to buy up all that land and being able to do all these things with it and basically get all this oil rich territory, you are once again altering the rotational frequency of the planet. Now, interestingly enough, you go for the pyramid and you go exactly one hundred and twenty degrees east this time, and you come out directly dead center off the coast of Tokyo and Japan, right on top of the fault line that ruptured, except the top of the fault line ruptured, right? So one way or another there is some kind of gigantic manipulation. There's all these people saying, Oh, they're using harp, or they're using ice cat, or they're using uh, you know, weapons or bombs or, or some kind of manipulation. Why? I, keep, I just keep asking them why. And they keep saying, oh, well, because it's to kill us all. Well, but that's not happening. I mean, they had a 9.0 quake that killed 15,000 people. They're not doing a very good job at it. They could have released a plague... 10 years ago.
0: Well, h- h- how about the radiation that comes after? Isn't that what's killing people?
1: The radiation as well. Fuki- Fukushima, it's a ho- it's a horrible nuclear plant, okay? I'm not saying there's not damage. Fukushima was the oldest and the worst of the General Electric plants. Everybody said that these things should have been torn down 45 years ago. Everybody said that Fukushima was the worst and was just waiting for an accident to happen. And of course, what's happening now is the radiation is far worse than most people believe, and it's the first nuclear disaster uh, Chernobyl was fairly landlocked. Three Mile Island was on a, you know, was on a river where they could basically contain it. Now you've got something that's right on the ocean, that's leaking all this radiation into the into, into the water. And of course, if you look at the tide patterns, it comes right up to, oh, let me see, Victoria Island and Seattle and down into you know the northern parts of San Francisco and California. And yeah, it's you know it's it's basically creating you know chaos. And I'm not saying it's all good. I'm just saying that it's kind of interesting that if you're looking at it from the global perspective, from, tw- from my perspective of going back 20-some-odd years, where I knew what they were worried about, you know, I'd read the reports of, you know, Report for an American 21st Century, and I'd read the Carter reports and all these things about what the, what the horsemen of the apocalypse were going to be. There is money and time and technology that's being used to fix these problems. Now, again, it does not mean, and we'll talk about the economic stuff, the other thing about 2011 that I think is, is, is probably the most onerous has been um, uh, the specific plans by George Soros in April at, the Bre- at the, what he called the Bretton Woods II Conference mm-hmm. to basically specifically restructure the economic, uh, to basically restructure the, the economy of the entire world. And General Wesley Clark said something also very interesting, too. This just came out this last week. General Wesley Clark claims that in 1991 that he had a meeting with, with Paul Wolfowitz. Paul Wolfowitz is the architect of, of our policy in the Middle East. He right. wrote a white paper that said the road to Damascus uh, is through Baghdad. And back in the early 90s, he was saying that, uh, that there were going to be seven nations and that these seven nations were going to be brought to heel. And that these nations, and Wesley Clark was presented with this with this information, and it explains so much about what's going on, that specifically that the United States, back in 91, was planning on basically assassinating a group of seven world leaders and destroying seven countries. And those countries are going to be Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, and Iran. And Wesley Clark said, so you're telling me that, that the, uh, <laughs> just the one thing that we learned is that we can use our military in all these different regions in the Middle East and that the Soviets won't stop us and that we've got about five or ten years, this is back in the back in the 90s, five or ten years to clean up those old Soviet regimes of Syria, Iran, and Iraq before the next great superpower comes to challenge us. And Clark said, quote, the purpose of the military is to start wars and change governments. It's not to deter conflicts, which is what he said to Paul Wolfowitz. And Paul Wolfowitz said, no, the purpose of the military is to create chaos so that no one can form a coalition against us. Mm. And that's exactly what the military has been doing. Unlike the British, when the British have gone into countries like South Africa or India, they've they're masters at setting up school systems. They set up parliamentary governments. They they set up uh, superb banking systems and structures. Um, and now you see places like India. I mean, you used to have South Africa before it was basically abandoned by you know the the, the Dutch and the British right. and all that, and sort of left to its own devices. But um, you know, but what does the United States do? You know, the United States, you know, I don't mean to be indelicate, but the United States takes its pants down and just takes a dump on everything before, you know, and, then, and then pees on the head of all the people before they go. And, you know, after eight years, we've destroyed the electrical grid. They don't have any power. They don't have any water. You know, we're saying we're replacing this, this tyrant, Saddam Hussein. Well, I don't seem to remember Saddam Hussein murdering 1.2 million of his own people. That's right. <laughs> which, is what the, which is what the U.S. military did when we went into Iraq. Yeah. And Afghanistan is pretty much the same way. And my terror is now becoming Iran. that if you look at what's going on, that all of these soldiers that have now been trained in, in what they call urban suppression, that, you know, for eight years they've been putting down what they call terrorists and revolutionaries. Well, now that you have the National Defense Act, the NDAA, that's right. now that they've declared that the United States, that the homeland is, that that's enemy territory, and that the terrorists are here among us, and that now the military... Can, can arrest and detain indefinitely anybody it claims is a terrorist. And the fact that this, this outrage, this abortion of a piece of, of satanic legislation was passed on December 15th, and that that was the 220-year anniversary of the Bill of Rights, and again, they just took a dump all over it, and I cannot oh. believe that somebody in Congress didn't stand up and, and, and make a bigger fuss about this, because they are, they are very specifically bringing all these troops home, now the troops are being privatized because these guys are getting jobs with Blackwater, with Pinkerton, with Wackenhut. Uh, Blackwater's called something else now, but they're privatizing the military to be able to get around Posse Comitatus. And the biggest thing that we have to worry about in 2012, and I'll go through the whole astronomical aspect of this, but since 2008, the military has had something called Project Unified Vision 2012, and. Two months ago, in November, the military had a conference in Chantilly, Virginia. And in Chantilly, Virginia, this conference was a conference on Unified Vision. And Unified Vision, their their question, it it is resolved, what is the purpose of the United States military in what we see as a complete social, political, and economic collapse of the United States by the summer of 2012? This was as far back as 2008. Is Is
0: this the Weimar Republic leading to Nazi Germany all over again?
1: We're there, man. If you you know, if you're really thinking about you know, you've got Lindsey Graham standing up on the floor of the Senate saying, you know, if you want a lawyer, you know, no way, you don't That's get right. no lawyer. That's right. That's it, man. I mean, you know, you and people were people were mad. I was really angry because Hank Williams Jr. got kicked off Monday Night Football because he said watching watching John Boner. I'm sorry, he pronounces it Boehner now, but it's right. Boner. Mm-hmm. John Boner playing golf with Barack Obama was like watching. Uh, Netanyahu playing golf with Hitler, and he got kicked off Monday Night Football for that. And I said, of course, well, oh, there's all kinds of differences between Barack Obama and Hitler. I mean, Hitler didn't smoke. Hitler didn't sneak into Germany from Austria and pretend to be German. Oh, that was all kinds of differences. You know, Hitler liked dogs. You know, I don't know. But as far as this goes now, um, you know, well, the,
0: the only the only thing I don't see yet in the United States is that they're not pinpointing the people yet to put him in concentration camps. But with this NDAA. That's 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 the road to it.
1: Yeah. Well, again, I mean, what I've seen is I've seen executions of people like uh, Jerry Cain, uh, who was doing nothing but going around teaching people how to fight the banks with mortgages. And he and, he and his son were gunned down out in front of a Walmart. That's right. And I've spoken. To, I've spoken to his his widow, Sherry Kane because I've seen the video that they showed on 60 Minutes. And, and again, that video is fake. And the police tricked it up to basically cover their asses. And they got actors for this video, and it's not Jerry Kane and his son. And it's just, I mean, this is what's happening, is that very quietly uh, people are being arrested for everything from, you know, taxes to, uh, uh, you know, civil disobedience or whatever. I mean, I, I had prayed to God that the Occupy Wall Street kids would get together and, you know, come up with anything useful out of that movement that was, that was something other than, what do we want? We don't know. When do we want it? Uh, we don't care. And, you know, and start saying, look, we need, if we're going to fix things economically, we need the states to start opening banks that are run by the states uh, so that they can actually, uh, so that they can start printing script, and they can take their assets and put them in the banks, and uh, we need to start following the model of places like North Dakota. North Dakota is a superpower now. North Dakota, because, and they've got less of a population than, than, than Alaska, mm. and yet just because they're putting all their assets in the banks and issuing script North Dakota has all kinds of money, they're the only state in the black, they have no financial problems, and finally, and I do know some people in the Jerry Brown administration here in California, and I, knew, I know Gavin Newsom, he used to be the governor of San Francisco. San Francisco.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every time I talk to these guys, I kept saying, look, why doesn't if California opened a bank like North Dakota, you guys wouldn't have any of these problems anymore, because then you could take all the private assets of California. Because California, everybody thinks California is, well, on the public side, California is about $80 billion in the hole. But on the private side, California has close to about $120 billion in assets, in money. And but you talk to the controller, and I've actually had this conversation with these people, and he goes, "Well, you can't, you, you can't mix private and public funds. That's illegal." They're absolutely right. But if you're in a bank and you put all your private assets into the bank, then you can borrow against your private funds and issue script and whatever else. And and what will happen is is that finally Jerry Brown, about two months ago, signed a uh, 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 signed a uh, it wasn't a piece of legislation, but he signed a recommendation to create a blue ribbon panel to now study. Whether or not they should actually open the Bank of California, if that happens, that's the revolution. That's Fort Sumter. That's you know, that's the Battle of Lexington. That's the around the you world. You think that's
0: going to domino to the rest?
1: Hell yeah! If California, the fifth largest economy on Earth, mm-hmm. pulls out of the Federal Reserve system, oh my God, blood will flow.
0: But don't you think that the Federal Reserve will act before that? crashing the economy or doing something else, just like if, if Ron Paul gets ahead ahead, and maybe even becomes electable?
1: Well, I, again, here's my challenge. I love Ron Paul to death. I will vote for Ron I'll, I will fight for Ron Paul until the day I die. And the challenge is going to be he's going to win Iowa. He's probably going to go into New Hampshire. You've already seen Newt Gingrich, you know, zombie-like rise from the dead yep. because they want to back anybody but Ron Paul. And the challenge is going to be now is that you talk to the Republican, if you basically talk to the Republican state chairman, that they're now saying that it doesn't matter if he wins in Iowa, we will ignore it. I mean, because the bottom line is the primaries. They only started primaries in 1910. The primaries are just. uh, they're a formality. I mean, the, the the heads of the parties can nominate anybody they want, and I'm telling you right now, they won't nominate. It is not that he is unelectable. They said Ronald Reagan was unelectable. They said Jimmy Carter was unelectable, and yet they swept into power on a on a popular outrage. What will probably happen is, is that, you know, they mean, it's you know, just because it's always the least qualified guy. It will probably eventually boil down to Mitt Romney because he's the least disgusting, and ron paul and what jesse ventura has said behind the scenes is that if ron paul runs as a third party candidate that jesse ventura will run as his vice president okay. but all that will do is basically grease the skids for you know obama to pull out basically a three-way tie well because here's what you're seeing. i mean he's got basically i mean let's you know i will call, let's let's be honest here and I'll be accused of all kinds of terrible things but he's got the black vote wrapped up with about 15% of that he's got the hispanic vote wrapped up because now he you know this criminal eric holder who's the Attorney General of the United States.
0: Fast who and Furious. Behind
1: operation Fast and Furious, who gave weapons to the Mexican drug cartels that then murdered Border Patrol agents. Oh, and by the way, now they're finding that the Oklahoma City bombing was also a sting operation, where they released a bunch of explosives to supposedly right-wing radicals that then, yep. oh, that then, that then they lost. And they told Terry Nichols, well, we won't give you the death penalty if you help us get the explosives first. Which, you know, which did not happen. So now Holder has his fingers in that pie, too. I mean, he's, just, he's the biggest crook on Earth. And the guy's the Attorney General of the United States. Oh. And what are they doing now? They're suing Sheriff Joe Apio, who's one of the best law enforcement guys in the nation. I know him. I knew him from my days at hard copy. He always gave us good stories when we went out to Arizona. And they're suing him because he's he's mean to Hispanics, because he checks their papers when they go to jail. So he's got 4,500 illegal aliens sitting in his prison that the federal government wants him to let go. So with that, he's got the Hispanic vote, which is another 20-plus percent. So what Obama is doing is he's playing class warfare right now. He's pitting class against class you know, the unifying president, because that's all he's got, because he hasn't accomplished anything, well, except, <laughs> except health care. And again, you know, the British just taxed tea. They didn't force you to buy it. And, you know, that's what health is all about. And that will no doubt probably be struck down by the Supreme Court, because it's such a gigantic violation of states rights that even this, you know, this garbage Supreme Court that we've got now uh, will probably strike it down. So, you know that's what you're. You know that's what you're going to see politically. My, my, my limits, let me.
0: But going back to Iowa for a second, do you know that the caucuses uh, are being moved to a secret, undisclosed location?
1: Uh, <laughs> see, Mel, there's that too. Look, we spend millions of dollars rigging elections in banana republics, you know, everywhere around the world. You don't think we don't do the same here? Of course. You don't think you know? Diebold is in control of the machines, no. and fifth graders can can alter those electronic voting machines. And I'm just telling you that that. Again, Ron Paul, even in the last election, Ron Paul won hands down and it and it turned out you know in all these various primaries, and the the ballots got lost, and the, you know they go into the electronic voting machines and again, we don't you know it's not a freely elected society anymore. people just need to wake up to the fact that it's all controlled by the oligarchies and the elites, and they're not going to let control of that you know it'll come out with oh at the last minute, you know people got disaffected with how radical Ron Paul is, blah blah blah. And you'll hear the whole thing, and, and oh, Newt Gingrich again will rise from the dead. and you know Gingrich is, I mean, he's personally and politically slimy. It would be interesting to see a debate between Gingrich and, and Obama, because Gingrich could really, Gingrich would basically take aim and you know, shoot Obama right between the eyes. So he's so, a career
0: he, politician, too.
1: And, and, and he would very much go for the throat, much more so than Mitt Romney would, as an example. But again, it'll boil down to the least detestable candidate. And if it's a and if it's a if it's a two-way race, I think the Republicans are, you know, I think Mitt Romney's going to wind up being president of the United States.
0: But what happens but if, it, if 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 uh, Paul wins Iowa? Because there's so many people looking at it, and there are no computers counting there; it's all paper. But that's why they're trying to make it uh, hidden.
1: I remember, Iowa's a caucus, and and it's yes. weird. It's it's a very it's like a big picnic. It's it's not even a. Uh, and Iowa is just very strange. Once he gets to New Hampshire, it's going to be very interesting to see, because obviously winning New Hampshire, but you will see the same thing that happened to Ron Paul, happened to Pat Buchanan, where Pat Buchanan won New Hampshire, hands down, and then as he, as, as then he went through, basically the, he got t- everybody turned against him. The, the, the state Republican leaders are basically saying, we don't care. We don't care if Ron Paul wins all of it. We will ignore yeah. any election victory he has, and we will nominate our guy, because Ron Paul single-handedly is the biggest threat to the military-industrial-illegal-alien complex, if you will. The military complex that that feeds on trillions of dollars off war. The Pentagon, whose budget for a year is more than the combined budgets of all 50 states. Of all 50 states. And And if Ron Paul brings all these people home... You know, oh, my goodness, you could pave the streets with gold. At the same time, the illegal immigration problem isn't going to stop because the Republicans want them for cheap labor because they can bust the unions because, they, you know, they used to come at people that wanted a fair wage and some fairness in the workplace. They used to come at them with, you know, rubber hoses and, you know, fire hoses and, you know, and dogs and cops on horses. Now they come at them with NAFTA. Now they come at them with illegal immigration. Well, really? You make 15 bucks an hour? Well, I can find some some uh, illegal immigrant to do your job for 7 bucks an hour. What do you think about that? Or I'll just ship your job to Vietnam where I pay a little kid, you know, a, a nickel and a, and a bowl of rice and some bugs every day uh, yeah. to do your job. So that's what they're coming at the American workers with. And, of course, the federal government has, because of the Republicans, because the guys at the top are making all this bank, if you will. Again, you know, Michael Moore, <laughs> you know, did say, here's you got GM making $4 billion a year profit who closed down all their all their plants in Michigan, to move them overseas so they can make $5 billion a year profit. And at the same time, you have and, – and the Democrats want them here because they basically add to social services and crime and, uh, and social programs, which they get to spend more money on. It's, just, it's And Ron Paul – threatens all that he threatens the entire establishment
0: how do you turn that tide well i I always say this in almost in every show when you have somebody saying well mel we need to buy american and we buy a gadget here for a hundred dollars and next door at walmart for 20 how do you how do you turn that tide of bringing those jobs back home
1: well i you know i don't i don't know i can't tell you that the the only way we can do it uh would be to again start voting people out of congress although again congress has a nine percent approval rating that's right Snooky. Snooky and Paris Hilton have higher approval ratings than Congress, yeah. and yet... They get their jobs back every year. I mean, Mel, if you, know, if you and I were on the radio and 81%, 91% of the people hated our show, we wouldn't be on the radio very long. If, only, well, if you went to work and only 9% of the people at work thought you did a good job, how long would you have a job? And yet every single one of these guys get reelected.
0: We know they're crooks, but there are crooks. That's what people say. I know that my congressman is a crook, but he's my crook. He, he brings some money here.
1: He's getting me stuff, and and unless they, until somebody until somebody nuts up and grows a spine yeah. and says we've got to, we've got to start passing tariffs, we've got to start taxing things at the at the water's edge coming in, and the biggest thing, and this is where the Wall Street, the Occupy Wall Street movement just failed so horribly. All they would have to do, really, right now is if they reinstituted what was called the Glass-Steagall Act
0: absolutely,
1: and, and create the firewalls between if they just went back to honest money and some, even with the Federal Reserve, if you just put the firewalls between savings and loans and commercial banks and the stock market and, and, you know, and, and stocks and bonds and every single one of those different, and insurance, now you can go into your bank and get every single one of those things. And then, when the stock market collapses, everybody wonders why everything collapses with it, because once again, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton.
0: 1999.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. 1998, 99. Revoked the Glass-Steagall Act, and right. I was the one predicting that it, that it was going to be revoked. I was the one that, that, that squawked the biggest about it, saying, and I said at the time, "Here's a prophecy for you. I said we got 10 years. In 10 years, you will see you'll see the stock market climb to." Um, fourteen hundred, fourteen thousand five hundred, and the stock market went to fourteen, fourteen three fifty seven. So I missed it by just a little bit, and I said, and then you will see a collapse of those markets, and then you'll see all these all the financial sector will go down with the stock market, and that's the beginning of the end. And it took exactly that long. Actually, it was nine years it took, um, you know, before that all went down. So, so there you go. So let me let me give you a. Sorry, I don't mean to take over the conversation here. Let me give you a pattern here, because there's some really interesting dates. Can I just roll out a couple sure. of dates for go you? Ahead. go ahead. Okay, here's the really interesting dates that I think are, are just fabulously cool. I mean, this is, this is why 2012 is so exciting, and, and it's just, there's just so much wonder and so many really amazing things on the positive side. Because on the positive side of all of this, there's a shift and change in consciousness that, that the bad guys know is coming. There is a veil that is about to be lifted off the right-hand side of the brain. There is, a, uh, there is an access to a font of evolution and ascension and information that has not been available to us for 26,000 years. And all of these things have to do with astronomical and astrological alignments that are all coming. And, here's, and let me just give you all of these things in a row. On December 3rd, This last month of 2011, um, there was a very interesting prophecy that was made by Terrence McKenna. And I interviewed Terrence years ago uh, for a show called Sightings. And Terrence was a good friend of mine. He lived across the bay. He lived in Half Moon Bay. I lived across the hill in Atherton, across the Santa Cruz Mountains. And Terrence studied something called Time Wave Zero. Yes. And and, And this was basically, he took the I Ching, the Chinese divination system, and jammed it into a computer back when he was using the old Macintoshes. And found that it generated this fascinating holographic pulse or wave of history. And one of the things that he saw was the beginning on December 3rd of 2011. Now remember, remember this, was, this was 20 years out this is back in '91 now that on December 3rd of 2011, he said that we would enter the final wave, the final Fibonacci wave spiral, that would basically set the tone for all of future civilization. And the reason it was unique is because December 3rd represented exactly 385 days, which is one lunar year of 13 lunar months until what he saw as the singularity of, of the I Ching and the Time Wave Zero software. And this singularity occurred on December 21st of 2012, and that this final wave would build in intensity and power, going all the way up to what he called this black hole singularity point on December 21st of 2012. And what he explained was, if you look at how the wave going from Emperor wind at the creation of the I Ching, which is like 5132 B.C. or something way, way back in history, and as it unravels all the way out, you have these, these, what he called novelty waves and spikes. And these novelty waves were fascinating because very interesting novel things happened at the peaks and the valleys. For example, the, uh, the Muslim Golden Age, the, the Crusades, the Black Plague, the Renaissance, First World War, Second World War, uh, American and French Revolutions, all these fascinating things in history happened on these waves. And Terence said, quote, And on December 21st of 2012, you will see a novelty wave that is generated that is greater than all of these previous waves Combined. And I said, Terrence, what could that be? And he had this really funny voice, and he's like, "The only thing I can think of is that humanity learns how to travel through time, and hmm. the, and that's what he saw as being the you know the final wave." Now, whether or not you interpret that as uh, somebody basically writing a book and putting Einstein's uh, unified field theory in it, like I've done in my book Sands of Time, um, or if you uh, look at it from the point of view of again. Once you unleash, the, once you take off the veil on the right-hand side of the brain, the right-hand side of the brain, the left-hand side of the brain, we think in terms of mathematics, geometry, linear time, point A, point B. The the, the left-hand side of the brain does nothing but measure things. It's only good for measuring height, width, breadth, distance, and a measurement of linear time, you know, just putting things into order. The right-hand side of the brain thinks in terms of, of colors, dance, music, art, symbols, archetypes, and it, and it thinks in terms of quantum time, that time is not a straight line. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly ball, if you will. And the quantum brain, specifically the back part, which is like the superior anterior part, is the area that is basically activated by things like DMT and, and LSD and, and psilocybins and mushrooms and peyote and ayahuasca and wachuma and all these various psychedelic drugs. And it taps us into a quantum space. Where we're able to see the the past, present, and future, uh, you know, like Einstein said, you know, time is just God's way of everything not happening all at once, and so you know that's what we're looking at in that particular essence. Now, what I see happening is that, and let me just go go down the line here. Dr. Carl Johann Callum I think did some of the greatest work on this, where he talked about the Mayan calendar basically ending, or the one the one of the final phases. When I October. say one of the final phases. One big phase, but on October 28th of 2011, everything added up to 13, 13, 13, 13, 13. Very good. But what he doesn't, and I think this is where John Major Jenkins takes it, and I, and I, I think both of them are right, what happens now is now all nine waves of our evolutionary frequency or cycle have now been completed. So now, in essence, you now have, finally, on October 28th, 2011, the sperm hits the egg, if you will, and the question becomes... When does life, the new man, really begin? Does it begin at conception, which is the conception point of October 28th, or does it begin at the actual birth of whatever new that is coming, which is what the symbology of the ball court at Chichen Itza is, that the sun aligns with, the, with what they call the dark rift or the great guff or the, the cosmic vagina, for lack of a better term, that looks like the crowning head of a child coming down the birth canal, this new man that's being born. So right now, all nine waves of 16.4 billion years of not just Earth evolution, but universal evolution. That's why the, that's why the Mexican and the Guatemalan pyramids are so cool. That's why Tikal and uh, the, the Panther Pyramid at Tikal and Chichen Itza are so fantastic, because those pyramids are universal. Those pyramids talk about a universal evolution, whereas the Great Pyramid of Giza, spectacular thing, and at the same time it talks about a... 7,000 year cycle of the evolution of man, which eventually ends up with a bunch of messiahs coming and sort of leading us to, you know, it goes all the way to like the 30th century where we finally ascend and conquer death and all that. But the great thing about this is these nine levels going from, uh, let me see if I get them right, going from cellular to mammalian to the development of then with mammals, you then have families, from families you have tribes, from tribes you have regions, from regions you have nations, from nations you become aware of where you are, are as a planet. From the planetary awareness, you become of the, aware of the galactic awareness, which is what's happened from 1999 to now. And now we're in that hyperactivated space where we're becoming aware of who and what we are in the universe That that's as above, so below, as within, so without, but the universe is really inside us. So now we're in that universal awareness. So this whole next year is kind of us floating through space, you know, literally floating in the womb of the cosmic liquid, you know, listening to the, you know, the thumps and the sounds and the conversations from outside the womb, if you will, from outside the earth, really, to be born into whatever's coming. And in the process of this, you have a series of of fantastically radical shocks that are coming. And, and, And here's my timeline. February 8th and 9th, there's going to be a a massive fluctuation in the force. I would not be surprised uh, if you didn't see a major earthquake uh, or another uh, tsunami disaster of some kind, and I'm seeing the east coast of the United States under threat at that particular period of time. You then have another one coming uh, right around March 17th to about the 22nd. Then it gets interesting because May 20th, and we're, we've got a big conference, which I'm hoping you can come to, actually. Uh, we've got a big conference going on in Mount Shasta, California, because the, there is a total eclipse of the sun that begins in Osaka, Japan, which just so happens to be the sixth chakra, or the third eye chakra of the planet, that then comes across the Pacific Ocean, that then comes to Penumbra directly off the coast of Eureka, Oregon, then comes down, and, and by the way, that's the termination point at the top of the San Andreas Fault, so there's a lot of pressure on that. It's also the bottom of what's called the Cascadia Fault Line, which the Japanese earthquake relieved all the pressure on. I, again, if you're going to trigger an earthquake in Japan you're actually looking at okay we lose about 15,000 people but at the same time you're saving oh let me see victoria vancouver seattle portland eugene you know all these all these areas in in the pacific northwest because the cascadia fault line was starting to activate rather radically so on may 20th for the first time in 26,000 years you will have a prophetic alignment of the sun and the moon directly aligned at 30 degrees Taurus uh, with the constellation of the Pleiades. And throughout every ancient culture, the Great Pyramids and the Mayans and the Olmecs and the Toltecs and the Aztecs, every single one of them talk about the Pleiades as being the constellation that brings enlightenment, that brings the next phase of ascension to mankind and, and humanity. Now, 16 days later, you have the transit of Venus. Now, the last time... Venus, Venus transited the sun. In other words, moving across the face of the sun relative to the Earth was uh, 6-6 of 2004. And Richard Hoagland did some very interesting experiments where he took a watch and he went to Teotihuacan in Mexico and he actually, he actually showed that all his instruments went crazy when Venus, that there, was a, that there was a palpable, scientific, measurable wave of force energy that actually began to bombard the Earth. What it did was it opened the gate to the right-hand side of the brain. It heralds the return of the blue half, if you will, the, the what we would call the passive-feminine-submissive-blue-magnetic half of the feminine strand of the DNA, the return of the female twin of Christ, or the female essence of Quetzalcoatl.
0: The divine now, feminine?
1: The divine feminine, exactly, right? The return, as the Native Americans call it, of the white buffalo calf woman, that's yeah. what they've been talking about for forever, and I've been saying since '94 that the next great Christ, if you will, that the, that the, this great world leader, and I take a lot of flack for this because it's not going to happen until about 2034. Well, it's about the 2030s or so is going to be this global leader who's going to be female, and I kind of joke saying, well, by you know by, by 2034, you know men won't be trusted with like you know matches and sharp scissors and you know if they'll they'll give us blunt objects and crayons to play with by that time, you know, because we'll kind of blow up the earth. But that 16-day period, which now has not only been prophesied by the Mayans, because if you look at the final plate of the Mayan codex, which has the sky serpent, or actually it's a crocodile, this sky crocodile that's 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 vomiting out these gouts of of water, uh, with like black splotches in it. You see this weird black character at the bottom of it with a, you know, with kind of a weird uh, 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 macaw on his head, seven macaw on his head, and then you see this other black woman who's basically contributing to this, you know, the destruction of the planet. There are these two weird kind of nipples coming off the, coming off the sky dragon. And depending on which way you read the, the sky dragon or the sky crocodile vomiting up all this water, it happens between an eclipse. Uh, you know, it, it points to 2012 happening between an eclipse and a Venus transit because it's two symbols for an eclipse and a Venus transit. Well, okay, there's, there's two eclipses on either side of, um, of the Venus Transit. The first one is May 20th, and then the Venus Transit happens on June 8th, and the next eclipse, the very last one before 2012, uh, doesn't hit land anywhere. It actually starts at the top of Australia, comes across the South Pacific, and the only place that it hits land where you can actually see it is this weird island off the coast of Chile called San Juan de Frisco. And lo and behold one of the great Mayan kings named Kokbalam. Kok Balam, which means the, uh, the god jaguar. Kok Balam ruled for 46 years, and his tomb disappeared. Nobody to this day knows where Kok Balam is. Now, there's a big a special on the Discovery Channel. I've wondered this for years and years and years. Well, there's a guy who claims he saw the riddle, and there's a special on the Discovery Channel called, or history, I think it was, uh, called Apocalypse Island, and I think you can look it up online. But this guy actually found what he believes is a monument or the tomb of Kok Balam on this island, where Kokolam prophesied that if he could witness the Venus transit and the final eclipse before 2012, that he would reincarnate as the Lord of Time. And this island is the only place where you can see the Venus transit and the final eclipse on November 13th. Now, I believe that in the period of time, between that 16-day period are is going to be a very... Radical, drastic, and, and and tragic period of time on the planet. I think at the same time that you're going to be seeing ascension everywhere, and uh, you know dreams and visions and you know whatever else. I think you're also going to see the water catastrophes, some kind of massive water catastrophes that are predicted. Um, you know, floods and and massive rains or runoffs or whatever else that you know that is that is predicted by the by the the final codex of the of the Mayan calendar. Moving forward from that in late June from june twenty fourth to about July fifteenth, we have a series of astronomical alignments uh, not well astronomical, astronomical but astrological we 've got a very interesting war in the sky right now uh, you 've got Pluto in the same place where it was between seventeen sixty six and about seventeen eighty and that is the, that 's the shot around the world that 's the american revolution that 's the, that's the banking industry. Britain loses a bunch of wars and they start taxing the crap out of the colonists and uh, they don't get representation. And so basically it's a, it's, you know, it's a radical fight against England because of the banks. And so, you know, what happens? You've got Pluto that moves through Capricorn, which starts a whole new form of government, which has the revolt against the banks and a whole new form of, you know, all these things happening. Now you've got Uranus and Aries. Uranus is the father of Cronos, who is Saturn. And Saturn I mean. is the father of Jupiter. And right now Saturn is in Libra, And and, and Uranus is in Aries. So these two planets are at war in the sky. So Uranus is creating massive, massive revolt. It's going to be atomic bombs, atomic weapons, but also riots in the streets. But just chaos where nobody knows why they've got like itching powder on their skin and why they've got to go protest and jump up and down and yell and scream and do whatever. But this conjunction of Uranus, Saturn, and Jupiter is the same set of planets and the same conjunctions coming up in that period of time as the as the collapse of the stock market in October of 1929. And it's the first time it's happened in 84 years.
0: With what we see in the United States, and maybe even the world, I mean, I mean we're going to talk about Europe, too, I want to see it. There's a lot of people yeah, sure. from Europe listening to us, too. Absolutely. But let, let's just pick the, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Do you think this is a way for them to prepare for what they see coming.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, the military's been studying it since 2008. Absolutely. What do they do? You know. And again, I I know how weird this sounds, but the, it seems like the only two guys right now that I know of that are really actively battling the whole New World Order plan. Um, and outrageous as it sounds, is Vladimir Putin, who paid off Russia's debt got them out from underneath the IMF and grabbed David Rockefeller by the scruff of the neck and kicked him in the pants and, and booted him out of the country, along with Chase Manhattan Bank and everything else. And the other one is, uh, is a man who is a really unsung hero, and is one of the reasons why we're all sitting here now having this conversation, but it's Admiral Fox Fallon. And Admiral Fallon, who is now the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or actually one of the big bosses of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon, um, Fox Fallon was the one who was appointed by Bush, to take over what was called Tyrant, and Tyrant was the Iranian near theater of operations. So he was responsible for basically all the the the, the battle, uh, everything in the Middle East. You know, over the course of the Iraq War, he was the one that once he got in there, Bush six different times tried to start a war with the Iranians. The Fox foundation said, "No, uh, no, it's not going to happen on my watch. A war with Iran is disastrous. Uh, you know, America would lose its power, lose its prestige." Oil would be $250 to $300 a barrel. No, I'm not going to do it. And he refused. This is while Dick, Dick Cheney was meeting in the White House with Hollywood screenwriters. And by the way, this is a story that was by William Sapphire in the, in the New York Times, for God's sakes, where Cheney's meeting with scriptwriters, screenwriters from Hollywood, trying to, get, trying to say, how do we creatively start a war with the Iranians to make it look like their fault? And Fox Fallon was the one on six separate occasions. He intercepted communications and all kinds of dirty tricks and low kicks and rotten licks that Bush and Cheney were trying to put in to get the United States involved in a war with the Iranians. And the bottom line was, and I told people this months before it happened, that it was the generals' revolt in the Pentagon where they said to Bush, as far as we're concerned, you're incompetent, you're insane, uh, you're a drug addict, and we're not going to do anything that you say. Uh, Because as far as we're concerned, we don't believe you to be competent to be commander-in-chief. And this was Fox Allen. It was leading the charge in this, saying, "No way, I, you know, Bush can fire him if he wants." And they eventually did get rid of him. But you know, now he's head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he's doing the same thing with Obama. Although, again, I told you, Obama's rocking this weird line because Obama has to keep his very wealthy Jewish constituents happy by pretending he's all buddy buddy with Netanyahu and the Israelis, who he, he he hates Netanyahu. I mean, he really. I mean, Netanyahu's in the White House basically just bitch-slapping Obama around. You know, saying, well, you don't know anything about the Middle East. Dog, 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 dog. Yeah. And Obama's like, whatever, I'm, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. Here's the keys. Just turn the lights out when you go. And <laughs> you know, he's living in the White House for like a week and a half. Is that right? And, uh, you know, yeah, just rolling around, giving speeches to Congress, where the Congress stands up 39 times to cheer him. He's yeah. living in the White House while Obama's flying around in his plane. So, you know, Obama just doesn't like him because he's, he's a Muslim. He's got this Muslim background, and he's supported by the Saudi Arabians. So I don't think all these people jumping up and down about a big war with the Iranians before this happens, I think it's just all speculation right now to get the prices of oil you know, up to some crazy price, and I don't see Obama doing it. However, one last thing with Obama, and I've said this once and I will say it again, no president in the history of the United States has, has been nominated, elected, and inaugurated under what we call a void-of-course moon, astrologically, and survived his term in office unscathed. Let me put it that way. Um, Clinton uh, took, the oath, took the oath of office on, uh, on a, what we call a void course moon, which means the, the, the moon has no aspects. It sort of floats in between two astrological signs with no aspects. It's what we call an abortion moon. You don't want to sign a contract. You don't want to make an agreement. You don't want to do anything under, the, under a void-a-course moon. Um, Clinton took the oath in '96 under a void course moon, gets impeached. Uh, Nixon, void of course moon in 72, you know, leaves office, was never, was never impeached. Yeah. Uh, and then you go back to Kennedy, you go back to uh, FDR, you go back all the way through it. So not only the 20-year curse, but every president that's ever taken the oath under void of course moon. Now, it is kind of weird because I predicted in writing in my newsletter to tell people to watch the inauguration that 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 Obama was going to find some kind of way to screw up the oath and not say it the way it's written in the Constitution because he can't legally take it. Uh, but that he took the corporate oath later on. But it's very interesting because now we've got a real problem because he took another oath at 7:33 the next day, which is really interesting because 7:33 p.m. is actually 19.33 uh, military time, and there's all these and they moved a picture of this Mason, you know, Carl Latrobe. There's all this Masonic symbolism going on with you know with uh, with Obama, and so it's it's all kind of crazy. But once again. You know, there's the good possibility, and I had a conversation with with a general behind the scenes at the time Obama was being elected, saying basically, "quote He better do well because better better a dead hero than a failed black president." So, again, there is a there there is a threat kind of hanging over his head. Again, all leaders should be prayed for, and you know, I certainly hope nothing happens to him. And at the same time, he's you know he's just kind of under a, a series of really bad stars. That point to him not finishing his term. This might also point to him being reelected, and something happened to him.
0: Do you think he'll appoint Hillary Clinton as vice president if he gets reelected?
1: No, absolutely not. She's 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 going to quit. She's done.
0: The reason why I say this is because if if I see a scenario happening in which he is like uh, Reagan and Bush in 1981, remember, I see that scenario happening if Hillary were his vice president. No,
1: nah, it's not. It won't. It just won't go down bottom line is, is that there was a, the, the Bilderberg meeting that occurred in May of 2008, where they met in Washington, D.C., and both sides, and remember, Hillary, in essence, won the nomination. Hillary had the votes to win the nomination. It was Hillary. And, and by the way, Obama was never legally really nominated by the Democratic Party. It was Hillary who stopped the count of the votes, even though she would have had enough votes to be able to become president, that said, well, I'm going to stop this right now, and we're just going to you know, why did she do that? The nomination of Barack Obama. Why he was told very specifically. And this was this was behind the scenes, and was reported on by Jim Tucker. And I heard it from uh, people who were on the inside, who I was in contact with. You know, that was the nice thing about working in television news, and you know, working on shows like Hard Copy and Strange Universe, and uh, working for Geraldo. That you get a lot of these contacts on the inside. You know, that still talk to me. I don't know why, but they do. And um, the deal was made, where on the one hand. They presented Barack Obama's whole past, and they presented all the stuff about Africa. They presented the information about who his real father is, which would probably shock your audience and your listeners, but I don't know if I should get into that here. Go ahead. But, you know, who is... No censorship here. I, I will simply say this, that this is what I was told, and there is a body of information to support it. Bottom line was that his biological father was
0: Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member... Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section. Enjoy.
1: This is Colin Andrews and you're listening to Veritas Radio.